Well, we're starting a new message series uh, today called um, The Wisdom of Kings. We're going to continue in the Old Testament. One of you said to me recently, man, you've had us in the Old Testament a lot lately. I'm, yep, I'm not done. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there. And if you've been following in the R&R Journal, you would have just recently read through all these these episodes, these accounts. But we are going to look at, spend 10 weeks looking at uh, different kings of the Old Testament and what we can learn from their lives. Today we're calling this Character Counts. Character counts. And right now you're thinking, especially those of you who are younger, you're thinking, wait a second, am I back in Clovis Unified School District? Right? That's, that's, that's a thing. I mean, but I learned this week that it's not just a Clovis Unified thing. This is like a national curriculum that probably many schools use and, and, uh, and, and it's good training. I, you know, I agree with all that. It's, it's wonderful. The problem, of course, is that we are all born with what the Bible calls a sinful nature. It's our natural inclination to not be like those nice things on the screen. Um, we, we, and then you add to that, you know, our hurts and our habits that, that combine in with that, and then we're prone to patterns of, of poor character, insecurity, uh, selfishness, self-preservation, self-indulgence, maybe even greed uh, or rebelliousness. And we, we try to pry some external pressure to like be, be these things, but the heart has to change. The heart has to change. Um, because we know we ought to practice those things, right? But Jesus didn't come to make you a nicer person. Uh, he, that's not why Jesus came. And I'm not here this morning to preach morality. I'm not here to just to tell you, well, just try harder, be gooder, right? Uh, that, that's, that's not what I'm here to do. And I'm better at grammar than that. Um, we need our character reformed, transformed. And we're going to see in today's episode, we're going to look at King Saul, just how costly poor character can be. The gospel says that any self-effort of ours at better moral behavior, right, will never be enough because it can't bring us into a relationship with God. I don't care how good you are, you're not perfect. You can't pay for your own sins by trying harder. Now, some people, and maybe you're one of these, um, will spend a lifetime, even in church, spend a lifetime doing good deeds and so on. And you just think, well, I just, I just got to try harder just to be a nicer person, just be a, a better person. That's what I got to do. Some, some of you think even think, well, that's what a Christian is, just a nice person. I hate to burst your bubble. <laughs> that's not it. And you live with this curse of trying to be a good Christian. You think, well, you know, sometimes you hear, well, that person, you know, she's a really good Christian. What, what do you mean by that? You mean she's honest about her failures and honest about her habits and her junk? That she opens up about areas that she still has fear and doubt and struggle and, and she's learning to rely on the grace of God? Okay, then I would say that's a good Christian, right? But usually we refer to the person who just looks good and says the right things. It's not what I'm talking about. The gospel is that only the power of God can make us new on the inside. And as a Christian, you're going to battle the same things that everybody else uh, struggles with, the same character flaws that everybody else has. Um, the difference is that by faith, Christ is in you. And as you learn to trust him more, as you step more into a relationship with him, your decisions, your actions, your attitudes begin to transform and become more and more of what Jesus would have you do and be. So it's not your effort. It's God's amazing grace and goodness. 
But it leaves me feeling a little bit conflicted because it is our cooperation with what God's doing that needs to happen as well. So over the next 10 weeks, like I say, we're going to spend some time with these famous Old Testament characters who are remarkably human, very flawed. And uh, we're going to hopefully learn some things from them because they needed the same saving faith that you and I do. And um, some were better than others. And uh, the more they trusted in themselves, the worse things got, the more they relied on God, the better things were. So we're going to start with Saul, Israel's first king. Let me just lay the groundwork very briefly. Um, the Israelite people, Josh had referred to the, the, the nation of Israel, leaving Israel. They got to the promised land. They were governed by a series of prophets or judges, as they were called. And over time, they got the people got to the place where they said, we want, just like all the other nations around, we want to have a king. God says, I'm your, I'm your king. Yeah, no, but like we want like an actual king, like a real human person that we can. And God relented and allowed them uh, a, a king. And he pointed a guy named Saul. Now, Saul was the picture of what you would want a king to be. The Bible describes him as he was handsome and he was a head taller than everybody else. I'm going to put somebody on the spot right now if I can see him. Mr. Gady, could you stand? Justin, would you stand? Okay. Now, Justin, you're not a... How tall are you, Justin? He's six feet tall. Justin's six feet tall. Like, Justin makes me look short, right? So this is what you have. Like, people would look and say, yeah, Paul would be a better king than Justin, without a doubt. Now, go ahead and be seated. Thanks, you guys. Appreciate that. Um, Good sports in this place. And... Yet, what happened? King Saul struggled from the very moment of his inauguration. The, the prophet Samuel anoints him, says, you're going to be the king. They're going to go public. And they're like, where is he? Where is he? Where's Saul? And they find him hiding in the baggage area. He's hiding because he's like, I don't want the, I don't want the attention. He's very insecure, unsure of himself. And so that begins to play in his whole life. So if you've got a Bible with you, we're going to find First uh, Samuel 13. And I'm going to walk you through Samuel 13, 14, and 15. See if we can do this uh, and still get you out for lunch. Um, Samuel is, uh, if you start at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel. So what are we, seven or eight books in? Nine books in, something like that. So you're in the, if you've got an Old Testament, kind of near the beginning of that, 1 Samuel 13 is the chapter, that's the big number, small numbers are the verses. And I'm going to read to you Samuel 13, 1 through 15, then we're going to talk through the, the rest of it, okay? 1 Samuel 13, it goes like this. It says, Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned for 42 years. Saul selected 3,000 troops, special troops, from the army of Israel. Uh, so like, even then, they had special forces. I mean, it's kind of a cool... Thought anyway, and sent the rest of the men home. He took two thousand of the chosen men with him to Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and the other one thousand went with Saul's son Jonathan to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. All that comes into play later. Verse three. Soon after this, Jonathan attacked and defeated the garrison of Philistines at Geba. The news spread quickly among the Philistines, so Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, "Hebrews, hear this! Rise up and revolt." All Israel heard the news that Saul had destroyed the Philistine garrison at Geba and that the Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. 
So the entire Israelite army was summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Just so you know, the Philistines had, they're just kind of a constant thorn in their side and been oppressing the Israelite people. In fact, had so much control over them, that the Israelites didn't even have any blacksmiths to kind of manufacture weapons for them because the Philistines controlled the iron industry at that time. All right, picking up at verse 5, it says, The Philistines mustered a mighty army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors as the grains of sand on the seashore. They camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Even. The men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in, and because they were hard-pressed by the enemy, they tried to hide in caves, thickets, rocks, holes, and cisterns. Some of them crossed the Jordan River and escaped into the land of Gad and Gilead. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal, and his men were trembling with fear. Verse 8 Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel still didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away, so he demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings, and Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. It's a no-no. Verse 10, just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to meet and welcome him, but Samuel said, what is this you have done? Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would, and the Philistines are at Michmash, ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. Verse 13, how foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And verse 15, Samuel then left Gilgal and went on his way, but the rest of the troops went with Saul to meet the army. And they went out from Gilgal to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. And when Saul counted the men who were still with him, he found only 600 were left. He really is in in trouble. So... um, now we've, we, we kind of learned from the next passage that the Israelites are deeply disadvantaged. Chapter 14 tells the story of Jonathan, who's a, a, Saul's son, is a man full of faith. And he says to his armor bearer, you know, well, let's test this out. I think we can take this, uh, this outpost over here, the Philistines, and the armor bearer says, okay, let's do it. And they go, and God helps them, and they, they, uh, they kind of send the Philistines running, and, uh, and the, the, the lookouts for Saul, they, they see what's going on. They're like, hey, those Philistines are all scattering. What's going on? And, uh, and, and so then, um, you know, verse 16, chapter 14, uh, verse uh, 17, they figure out that it's Jonathan that's gone. Verse 18, it says, Saul shouted to Ahijah, Bring the ephod here. For at that time, Ahijah was wearing the ephod. That's a, the, the priestly garment. Um, in front of the Israelites. But while Saul was talking to the priest, the confusion in the Philistine camp grew louder and louder. So Saul said to the priest, never mind, let's get going. And off they go into battle. Now, uh, as they, as they, they kind of start destroying the, the Philistines, and uh, verse 24 of chapter 14 brings us another kind of understory, a, a kind of a side story. It says, verse 24, Now the men of Israel were pressed to exhaustion that day because Saul had placed them under an oath saying, Let a curse fall on anyone who eats before evening before I have full revenge on my enemies. So no one ate anything all day, even though they had all found honeycomb on the ground in the forest. They didn't dare touch the honey because they all feared the oath they had taken. So you got this kind of impulsiveness of Saul's. It's like, no one's going to eat or drink until we get them all. 
Well, that you, I mean, obviously, you know, this is the dumbest thing you could do, right? And so they're going for it. And then, um, they finally catch a bunch of the Philistines. They, they get a bunch of the livestock and they're, they're, verse, um, 32 says this in chapter 14, 32. That evening they rushed for the battle plunder and butchered the sheep, goats, cattle, and calves, but they ate them without draining the blood. And someone reported to Saul, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that still has blood in it. Oh, that's very wrong, Saul said. Find a large stone, roll it over here, and then go out among the troops and tell them, bring the cattle, sheep, and goats to me, kill them here, and drain the blood before you eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating the meat with the blood still in it. So what you have there is Saul's like, He's not concerned about his own sin, but he's going after others for their sin. You've got this very inconsistent, fragmented character in Saul. So the, the, they go through the rest of the chapter. They, they find that David hadn't heard about the no-eating oath, the fasting oath, and had actually eaten some honey. Sir Jonathan, thank you. Uh, Jonathan uh, becomes friends of David later. So Jonathan um, is in trouble, and, and Jonathan... Um, his dad finds out that he broke the oath and ate some honey and he's going to kill him. He's going to kill his own son because he ate some honey from the ground and like kind of refresh himself. And, and his men finally kind of step in and say, no, 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 no one's, no one's died. Today is not that day. I mean, he is not dying today. So finally, so his life gets spared. So it goes on. Really, we do see that Saul has some great military success. And then finally, let me just talk to you a little bit about chapter 15. We have another command. Chapter 15, verse 1. One day Samuel says to Saul, It was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. So back to the story that Josh referred to. As they came out, they were sort of uh, Bedouin-type tribes that were in the south of what would kind of today be the Sinai Peninsula. And they were oppressing the Israelite people as they were coming out of Egypt. And God's going to set accounts right. Verse 3 Chapter 15, now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. And let me tell you, friends, these are the moments we say, the Old Testament's too bloody. This is not, is this really the God I worship? There's a larger context. And if you want to talk more about that, let's talk about that sometime. But we need to understand that in the in the large picture of things, there is a judgment for opposing God. And sometimes it's vicious. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross in such a brutal way to absorb all the judgment of God for our sin. But the Amalekites had sinned deeply and this was the judgment for that. Um, anyway, chapter 15, carrying on, verse 4. So Saul mobilizes army at Telaim and there were 200,000 soldiers from Israel 10,000 from Judah, and Saul and his army went to a town of the Amalekites and lay in wait in the valley. And um, it goes on to tell the story of verse 7, Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. And Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and the goats and the cattle and the fat calves and the lambs. Everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality, but God had said, destroy everything. And verse 10, then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry. If you ever wonder if God has emotions, he does. 
I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he had he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. Verse 12, early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him, Saul, uh, someone told him, Saul went to the town of Carmel and set up a monument to himself and then went to Gilgal. And when Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you. I carried out the Lord's commands. Then what's all the bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle I hear? Samuel demanded. Oh, it's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Saul admitted. But they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We've destroyed everything else. And Samuel said to Saul, stop. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. Oh, what did he tell you? Saul asked. And Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king. And the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they're all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for plunder and do evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord. I carried the, out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. And then he goes on to continue to defend himself. And then uh, we'll get into verses 22 and following later. So I want you to just get that picture. I know it's kind of an extended explanation of this situation, but this is really important because this is Israel's first king. And he really sets the bar kind of low how to behave. I'm going to talk to you about character. Character matters. Because if you get character wrong, you jeopardize everything in your life. You jeopardize your relationships, your finances. If you're married, you jeopardize your marriage, your parenting, your career. You put everything on the line, or at least you live with far less than what God intended for you when you when you accommodate and you're comfortable with undeveloped, immature, bad character. We want God to work in our lives, and so we want to cooperate with what God's doing. So regarding the life of Saul, all the potential was there. God had selected him. Had anointed him. He had the capacity to be an outstanding leader. He had the calling of God in his life. He had the gifting, the empowerment of God to, to be successful. But there was this missing piece of character. And if you're taking notes this morning, you want to write it down this way. The first point is this. Develop your character to match your talent, your gifting, and your calling. Develop your character to match your talent, your gifting, and your calling. Let me give you an example. Years ago, I, I, I worked with churches in music and music ministry. And then later when we were, uh, you know, church planting, um, involved in music. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've worked, got to work with some incredibly talented people. It's really humbling when you work with someone who's so gifted. And it's just like, wow. But occasionally I would get to work with somebody who was so gifted and so talented but they had such a big ego, they could, no one else could fit in the room. They couldn't work with anyone else. We couldn't use them in ministry because their ego got in the way. And it was, it was always a tragic thing. Because God had gifted them and placed them. Um, and they, they, you know, I think about one guy, he just, he couldn't develop his character to match the weight of all the ability that God had granted him. I remember one gal, she, she had a desire, and I think possibly a gifting, to be a worship leader. But her skill needed to be developed. And I said, hey, she said, I, I really want to lead worship. I said, oh, that is awesome. I think God's gifted you for that. He's called you for that. Our need right now is to lead 
worship in our kids' church. Now, the way we did kids' church is how most churches do it today, where you your children gather in a large group, you have an active, lively, vibrant worship time, you have an exciting, dramatized telling of the gospel message or a story, a biblical teaching, right? And then the kids break out into smaller sessions with, with leaders in age-appropriate groups, and they kind of dig into the story, build relationships, kind of direction we'll, we'll be going here with, with kids' ministry as well. But, but a big piece is this kind of worship and teaching element. And she said, oh, no. No, God's called me to be on the stage. And I was thinking, I, God didn't send me that memo. <laughs> and I said, well, I, that's the spot we have for you right now. And, you know, while she continues to stay involved, I think she missed developing the potential that God had for her because her ego wouldn't let her start with kids. And let me tell you, starting with kids is not a low spot on the totem pole, right? Didn't Jesus say we should become like children to enter the kingdom of God? It might actually be considered a promotion to work with kids. We need to be really careful about that. You want to develop your character to match your talent, your gifting, and your calling. Because you might be talented, you might be gifted by the Holy Spirit, you might have a sense of call on your life. But if your maturity, if your character isn't developing to support the weight of that, it all collapses. And we know stories, for example, of incredibly gifted pastors and evangelists who, you know, who've done God's work. They get taken out because they've given themselves to, 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 you know, moral or financial compromise. Gifting without character is lost potential. Now, God can work with anyone. I'm proof of that. But if your character defects, lead to the breakdown of your marriage or your family or your relationships, your finances, you're going to lose credibility in your testimony. So develop that character. Now you might say, well, Brian, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. I, okay, I believe you. But this doesn't... See, you, you think, well, I'm nothing like Saul. Well, I hope not. But we're all a little bit like that. I want to talk about Saul's defective character symptoms and um, because we want to be aware of these. So there's lots of different ways we can look at them, but I'm going to summarize with three R's. He was religious, rash, and rebellious. Religious, rash, and rebellious. The first, he was religious. And you're thinking, wait a sec, wait, 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 wait. You're telling me that to be religious is a character flaw. Yes. If... There's no relationship with God. If there's no relationship with God. See, religion without an authentic, ongoing, genuine, life-giving relationship with God is stifling. At best, it's deadly at worst. Jesus opposed. Who did Jesus oppose in his ministry? The religious ones. That's who he was up against. They knew the Bible. They obeyed all the commands. But they didn't follow God. They didn't trust God at a heart level. They followed the rules, but they didn't follow God. And in Saul's case, you see how he separated religion from any real dependence on God. Right? In in chapter 13, you have that situation where he's like, Samuel's not here. Fine, I'll do the sacrifice myself. Or later when when uh, he calls the, the, the priest Ahijah over and he says, hey, let's do this. And he's like, ah, oh, never mind. Let's just get on with it. 
there's this kind of moment of like, oh, I'm going to be really religious. But when it comes right down to it, I'm just going to do it my way. You've got this, like I said, where they're sacrificing the animals and he gets all high and mighty and religious. Like, you guys can't sacrifice, you know, you can't eat meat with blood still in it. That was kind of a very important command in their thing. And he's going to get all high and mighty about that one. But meanwhile, he's disobeyed God and everything else. So it's really inconsistent thing. And that's what religion will do. Religion is not bad, but religion without a relationship with God will deaden your soul. So we're just invited to a relationship. So if people say, are you a religious person? I generally like to say, you know, I'm, I'm really not. I try not to be. I'm recovering from religion. You know, my name's Brian and I'm a recovering religious person. When someone says, are you religious? I know what they mean. They mean is, you know, do you attend church? Do you have kind of habits of faithfulness? And so I respect that. There's multiple meanings to that word, but in that sense of being religious Oh, that, that's a dangerous spot. Secondly, Saul was rash. I don't mean he had a rash, although he might have, but it's not recorded. Um, I mean, he acted rashly. That word kind of includes the worst of all this behavior, impulsive, impatient, irresponsible. I want to talk about those three words. For example, when Samuel took too long to show up. Right? Saul just takes charge and he impatiently does the sacrifice, even though he's not supposed to. When he's chasing down the Philistines, you know, we see how he made this vow that none of his troops would eat or drink anything. Super impulsive. And he limited the success of what they could have accomplished because of his, his impulsiveness. And he was irresponsible. He would not accept responsibility for his sin when confronted by, by Samuel, especially in chapter 15. He starts making excuses. Well, we were, we, we're gonna, sacrifice the stuff just not right away and well it's you know we i had to do the sacrifice because it's your fault you didn't show up on time and well uh, you know we could have done this but 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 all these excuses and if you find you're a person who makes excuses like well i would but i blame the situation i blame my parents i blame my spouse i blame i blame that's irresponsibility and we're called to a level of responsibility says yes i made a mistake I messed up. The message of salvation is that we are all sinners. Repentance means we admit it and we receive God's forgiveness and we turn from that. So we say, God, I've messed up. I want to turn from that. I want to obey you no matter what. And if you're chronically impatient or chronically impulsive, you already know how costly that's been in your life, don't you? That rapid fire email, that quick social media post, Right? Or that road rage, or that racking up of credit card debt because you're not content. Those things have cost you something. They come at a price. Or making excuses for your behavior, or blaming people or situations for, for, for what you've done. That's irresponsible. And you miss out what God wants to do instead of saying, that was me, I did that. I was in the wrong. I wonder what could have happened if Saul had said, Samuel, I really messed up. He gets to the place of actually confessing his sin. And Samuel says, it's too late. It's too late. Saul's third major flaw was his rebelliousness. He offered a sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to. Told to wipe out the Amalekites. He disobeyed God and did what he wanted. Kept the spoils for himself. Didn't kill the king. Samuel um, 15... 22 and 23, we've got this one on the screen. 
says this, what's more pleasing to the Lord? This is Samuel speaking to Saul. Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft. Stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. That word stubbornness in other translations is called presumption and saying, I know what I'm doing. I don't have to do it your way. That's presumption. Stubbornness. God has rejected him. And it's cool to be a rebel. I get that. That's cool. But God equates rebellion with witchcraft, which is as anti-God as you can be. And if you're stubborn and you like it that way, I would urge you to repent and humble yourself and submit to God's way. Don't brag about how rebellious and stubborn you are. That's not a good thing. want to submit to God. It's the path to blessing. Don't be like Saul. You know, through the, if you continue to read in the story, you see that he suffered, he suffered demonic torment in his life, paranoia, um, rage. He became a really messed up guy through the rest of his life. Those character defects had roots that got worse and worse and worse in his life. Okay, so can we learn anything from this guy on how to do better? Yes, there's a little bit of good news. Um, the good news is I will have you up before noon. Bad news is cancel your 11.15 appointment. Okay. How to develop sustaining character. There's three big pieces um, that Saul missed, and we're going to call it this way. The first is that we need a relationship with God. You need to know your God. If you're going to develop character, you need to know your God. See, the outstanding message of Scripture is that God's been making Himself available to you throughout history and throughout your life. God even lowered Himself to live as one of us on the earth through Jesus Christ. That's how urgently, how eagerly, how desperately God has been reaching to us. And Saul, quite sadly, knew how to be religious, but he, he didn't know God. He had no relationship with God, no friendship with God. And it's, it's always easier to disappoint a stranger than to disappoint a friend, right? If you, if a stranger, um, you meet a stranger and they arrange an appointment to come show you their Cutco knives, you can call them and say, oh, I'm sorry, it's not going to work out, right? You might even lie to them and say, Actually, I have really good knives already or something. But if it's a friend who's helping or your friend's kid and they say, hey, I just want to give a demo. You don't have to buy anything. Just let me. You're like, I can't disappoint my friend. Yes, I'll listen to you. Should I ask for a show of hands how many have Cutco knives in your house? Nice. All right. I don't. We don't have those. So if you're ever selling those at a garage sale, let me know. Because those look really nice. But online, those are nearly $3,000. I don't have that. All right. So as you learn to know God personally, he's, he's your friend. And you look forward to reading the Bible. Look forward to worship, to fellowship, to prayer. You like getting to church, right? He, and as you get to know him, he shapes your attitude, your actions, your, your character. And it starts this way. It just starts by saying, Jesus, 
I know I'm a sinner. I've got this on the screen just to help you. Something like this. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I'm apart from, from God. I admit my sin. I receive your forgiveness. I believe you're the son of God. You died for my sin and you rose again. Lord, I, I get that. I just, I put my life on you. I receive new life from you. All right. Start with that and then grow from that. Second way to develop sustained character is to know your identity. You've got to know your identity, who you are. Saul was insecure. He didn't know who he was in spite of being talented, gifted, called as king. Right? But he didn't see himself as God saw him. Um, 15 verse 17 says it this way. we got this on screen. Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself... Are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Just don't stand up. I'm going to use that image as a little example. I'm going to convert that to dogs. Ever seen a pack of dogs? And you've got like a big dog and a little dog, but the little dog is the alpha dog. And the big dog doesn't realize, hey, I'm the big dog here. And the little dog says, I can do whatever I want because I'm the big dog here. That's Saul. He's the big dog but he acts like he's the little dog. And he didn't understand his identity. He didn't understand who God had called him to be. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to know you are a child of God. You're gifted by the Holy Spirit. You have a calling and a purpose on your life. You've got to grasp that you aren't who you were anymore. Because God has made you new from the inside. We read it last week, Second Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, they are a... New creation. So live in that eye. You've got to grasp. You need to remind yourself of that. Wait a sec. Why am I doing this over here? That's not me. I don't know if you... You know, I, I've done that while I was sin, And I'm like, wait a second. This is not who I am. I'm an, I have a different identity now. I'm a new creation in Christ. You've got to know your identity. And we'll find rest in Jesus when we do that. So... Find your identity, know it, that lays good framework. Then third, you need to develop sustaining character when you know your calling. And this is hard for most of us. I think this is kind of a lifetime project to know and understand your calling. But, you know, some quiet listening, sitting down. God, what are you actually calling me to do and to be? Where am I supposed to speak? Where am I supposed to be quiet? God, have you called me to guide people? Have you called me to teach? Have you called me to, to support, counsel, Lord? Have you called me to, to, to help others worship you? Have you called me to give? What, God, what's my calling here? Ask him to make it clear to you. Saul had those clear instructions, right, to destroy the Amalekites. Verse 18 of 15, Samuel says, The Lord sent you on the mission and told you, Go and completely destroy the Amalekites. Until they're all dead. That was, Saul knew his task, but he didn't know his calling. He knew what he was, the task that he was supposed to be. He didn't understand the calling behind it. The calling behind it was that God was setting accounts right. These Amalekites who had oppressed and sinned against the Israelites a couple hundred years earlier. Saul had a, a calling to set things right for God. But he didn't get it. He thought it was just a task. And so he didn't take it that seriously. He didn't know the calling behind the task. Verse 24 records his response. Saul admitted to Samuel, I I have sinned. I've disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command. But here's his excuse. I I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. 
Been there, done that. I was afraid of the people. More afraid of the people than afraid of God. Fear of people will take you down every time instead of the fear of God. I want us to be people of character. I don't need you to be a nicer person. I don't need you to be a better student. I want us to be people who are developing the character to match the calling, the gifting, the talent that God's already placed in you. Don't don't accept your character flaws as insurmountable. Uh, well, I, I'm just stubborn. I just am that way, right? Well, I just get angry easily. It's just kind of who I am. Or, well, I'm just not disciplined. Or I'm just impulsive. Don't accept that. Don't accept that. Christ in you wants to do a new work in every area of your life. Sometimes I feel like I am on baby step one compared to the junk that I've got to get through yet. Okay, let's start at baby step one. You've got to start somewhere. And then as you do that, you get to know God. You know your identity. You know your calling. And that creates this Safe and solid framework within which to grow godly character. And character does count. It does matter. I don't want us to disqualify ourselves like Saul did. I want us to put our full faith and trust in Jesus. And let him take it from there. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for preserving these accounts for us. And um, Lord, it's... It's just heartbreaking to to think what Saul missed out on. And then it's even more heartbreaking to feel like I'm looking in the mirror. And God, we don't want to be afraid of people. We want to fear you and love you. Lord, we don't want to make excuses. We want to accept responsibility. We don't blame others. Lord, we don't want to be so rash and reckless in our lives. God, we want to be all in with you. Lord, I know trying harder isn't going to do it. God, I need your work, the Holy Spirit to work in me, and each of us need your work in us to mold us, shape us, transform us in the people we want to be. And church, you may be somebody here today, you've never started that relationship with Jesus. You're a pretty good person. You try hard and you, you get along okay, but deep down you know you've never come to that place of surrendering to Jesus, receiving His full forgiveness, and having a new life in Christ. And if you're saying today, oh, I want to change that. I want to I put my, all my trust in Jesus and begin this work of new life in Him. If that's you, would you just raise your hand and we'll pray with you after the service. For the rest of us, we we want to say, God, would you do that work of shaping and molding? God, would you point out those places where I've ignored your instruction and instead dig in with you? God, we thank you for your word. We love you. Thank you that you love us more than we could possibly imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.